I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I thought I'd kick off uh, by explaining what Lotharingia actually is briefly before we chat. One of the oddities about Western Europe is that it's entirely unlike the world in which most human beings have uh, existed for many centuries. A normal human experience is to live somewhere massive, like, say, the Chinese Empire, the Persian Empire. The normal experience, say, in Eastern Europe has been to live either under the rule of Polish, Poland-Lithuania or under the rule of Russia or under the rule of the Ottoman Empire. And there's something very odd about Western Europe. Western Europe, like the, the, the 10 countries of what are normally treated as Western Europe, take up less space than Mexico. And it's a very, very odd arrangement to have so many small countries crushed together in this way. You know, if, if, for example, you're a dissident in China for centuries, um, you simply had nowhere to go. The, the reach of the empire was vast. Whereas it's often been the case in Western Europe that you can just hop across boundaries in one way or another. And what's really odd about Western Europe is that traditionally, if you go back to the Roman Empire, the border was along the Rhine. And you're either in the Roman Empire and you were a Roman, a Roman citizen or a slave, or you're to the east of the Rhine, in which case you were a barbarian. So it was a binary split in Europe. And then um, after the Roman Empire Christianized, it remained the same thing. You were a Christian Roman in the West, and in the East you were a pagan barbarian. And the Franks who took over the Roman Empire after its collapse, and in many ways inherited most of the kit from the Roman Empire, again, they generally treated the Rhine as being, you either were in the Frankish Empire, and you were, again, they became Christianized in the West, or you were a pagan in the East. And Charlemagne and his predecessors from the 8th century onwards, each year would then go on huge raids down the Ruhr Valley and so on, gradually incorporating what's now Germany into Western Europe. And gradually, but the crucial part of this process, which went on for many centuries until in the end the Lithuanians were Christianized uh, in the Renaissance period, was that, the, that each year you would hammer out a larger area of Christian Europe. But again, this is binary. And the point of this book is something very odd happens in 843 AD, the Treaty of Verdun, where just by accident, Charlemagne happens to have three grandsons who really hate each other. And they fight an inconclusive and embarrassing war that goes on for ages. And eventually they conclude sensibly, they meet at Verdun, or Wirten as it was then called, it was then, then German speaking. They met at Verdun and decided to split the massive Frankish Empire, which covered the whole of Western Europe, into three bits. Uh, and it's only because there happened to be three of them. If there had been two of them, there would have been a two-way split. So Charles went west and went to Paris and created France. Louis, or Ludwig, headed east and created Germany. And Lothar, the, the eldest of them, took over what became the lands of Lothar, Lotharingia, which was this big strip of land running from uh, the Netherlands down through Switzerland into the Alps. 
And that split, which was just for the convenience of these three people, my argument in the book is, has existed ever since. And sometimes it's been under stress, sometimes it's momentarily disappeared. Like under Napoleon, uh, he absorbed it all. Under Hitler, he absorbed it all. But always, effectively, the people in this big band of territory have, in one way or another, been victims, but also kicked back quite vigorously. So you have Dutch nationality in the north, Swiss nationality in the south, and these people take up very little room, but they are sort of giant, they have historically been sort of giant killers. And so this structure was then created, which has given Western Europe a very, very odd structure. And so the book wearyingly goes on for page after page about uh, the merits and demerits of Lotharingia and its central place in European civilization. Thank you very much. I mean, I should say immediately, the book is not wearying in any way. And without being unduly portentous or pretentious, the book is really an extraordinary different kind of history writing. I guess you will never read a history book like this because it has in it accounts of Simon's family holidays as a boy, accounts of his present family holidays, accounts of meals, accounts of the history of art. We learn what his favourite film is, Aguirre, Wrath of God, his favourite German, Dürer. The word fun is used 37 times. That must be a world record for a history book, or indeed a travel book. And it is at once a travel book, a history book, an autobiography, a lot of things. But it's written apparently straightforwardly. It's also very, very funny. So I think we need to have this as the backdrop. This is a very extraordinary piece of writing. And I imagine, I'm not saying this is your intention, but there is something in it of a kind of commentary on academic history writing or history writing. So that this is not, I mean, you learn, there's a startling amount of information in this book, but you learn it very, very easily and in a very amusing and very sort of um, easy way. It's like a sort of great history lesson from your favorite history teacher without you being taught anything. So it's like really a kind of rambling picaresque novel as well. But it gives you a sense of the chaos of history as well as the stories in it. One of the many striking things about it is that the book is about the writing of the book. Now, of course, that in itself is not striking, but the way this book is written is striking because Simon, or the narrator, goes on very, very elaborate trips all the time. All these places are seen and witnessed and described and accounted for. So I think my first question, in a way, is two questions. One is, how did you get to this way of writing, which is very, very unusual? Maybe let's start there. I suppose... It's partly because I had such a poor attention span that I'm obliged <laughs> to create a book out of chunks. I mean, I didn't write it in order. All my books have been written out of order because I always fear the... I, I have great hatred of the smooth narrative. I just feel that, that you should write what you think you want to write at any given point, and you should then create like a mosaic. At least that's the positive way of looking at it. A mosaic of effect through gradually filling it in, depending on what your interests are at any given point. So I came up with this structure. I have to say that, I mean, Adam and I have talked about this before, but the, I suppose my great heroes are the 17th century miscellany writers. And I love Thomas Brown, uh, Aubrey, Burton. And I love the, the idea of like the cabinet of curiosities, 
the idea that things are higgledy-piggledy and put together in a way which is one way you could arrange things, but it could be another way. And that's really, I'm Brown particularly is behind a lot of what I write. I'd like to think he's behind a lot of what I write. And this idea that something is inherently interesting just because you assert it, rather than having, a, for example, a logical argument, and I've always found very attractive. So I suppose that's where it comes from. I mean, I suppose it's, I couldn't write in any other way because I write in odd moments on trains or while going for a walk, whatever. So again, it's a, it's a the patchwork. It's a, it's a necessary side effect of the way I'm obliged to write, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's very, I mean, in the best sense, impressionistic. It's as though you follow your attention in one sense. And I suppose what I was wondering is how much. I mean, it's a very striking example in the book. I think no, hardly any historians are actually quoted. And I suppose I wonder how much you, or to what extent you, read and then go and look, or look and then read, or what the kind of order of events is. Because you do refer in the book to your homework, you do refer at one point to the meticulous note-taking, etc. And I was wondering, because it's integral to the book, how much you're prepared for what you're going to see, or how much you go and see and then you prepare yourself. Well. It's a very unstable combination. I mean, I guess I do read, I have read a huge amount for this book. I mean, I'm lucky because I work at Penguin and work on history books there. And so various historians who I publish are obliged to answer my questions to be polite, <laughs> which is kind of helpful. So I can say, oh, is it right about the Burgundians X or Y? And so things just come up. And I kind of think I could write the same book five or six times on the basis of the material I have, probably with different arguments. But fortunately, I've, I've now chucked away most of my notes to prevent myself going back to them. But I do love academic history. And I, one example was, was a long and, to be honest, somewhat tedious book about Picardy in the Middle Ages, which I was reading. But I knew sooner or later there would be something in there that was really interesting. Like, it had to be interesting. It was bound to be simply because interesting things always happen. And I'd almost given up on this book. But then suddenly it said how in one of the endless wars between the French kings and the Flemish city-states in the Middle Ages, there was one disastrous battle between these French knights on their horses with armour and the sort of churl army which Ghent uh, had of just citizens with sticks. And uh, they were thrashed, but suddenly someone realised that there were, lots of them were carrying pikes. And so when they fled the battlefield, they were able to vault over the canals with their pikes, and therefore they all escaped. And the, the, the French on their horses had to stop at the water's edge. And I suddenly thought, what a wonderful thing. You know, that's, that, it was worth reading this whole book, just to be able to convey to readers like yourselves the ingenuity of these people, that they suddenly realised they could invent a form of pole vaulting uh, as a side effect of technology. And so I suppose I'm always... I don't like quoting other historians, because I always feel that it's, it's confusing, but I know everything in the book is owed to hundreds of historians, really. Yeah, yeah. But do you, is there a sort of implicit dissuasion going on uh, about patterns of history? Because in a way, what's very powerful in the book is how much there is. And in a minute, I'll read a bit. But the, the book seems to me as much about the idea of excess, uh, uh, enthusiasm being a function of excess to some extent. But the, given the excess, and, and presumably Brown and Aubrey are significant here, given the excess, where do you start? Where do you stop? What do you exclude? And does it ever end? Yes, I think it ended when the book was full, like there was no way of yeah. being longer. I'd like to have been longer, but it was gently suggested by the nice people at Picador that it could not be any longer. So <laughs> I just ceased at that point. And I wasted vast amounts of material, but happily, I mean, a lot of the book is, was 
the research was just endless train journeys for a slow train or a delayed train was my ideal because I could just read for longer. And then whenever I was in any of these towns and this great arc really from uh, sort of the south, south of Amsterdam down to the Alps, you know, I just love all these places. And I just think these towns, these mid- medium-sized non-capital city towns are the reason for European attractiveness. You know, that they are in some ways victims, these towns. You know, they're always being attacked by someone, but they have incredible ranges of weapons available to themselves to defend themselves equally. And when I started writing this book, I did a photocopy of Western Europe and did, tried to draw these rather, uh, and coloured in the Lotharingia area. And the whole time I wrote the book, I had this on my desk. And I drew what was meant to be a sinister-looking eye on each of these capital cities outside the zone of Lotharingia. Uh, but unfortunately, they looked like I'm not sort of crushed donuts or something. I'm a terrible drawer. But anyway, there was a sinister eye on Vienna, on Madrid. Obviously, Spain's involved many years on Paris on Berlin and on London and, and on Amsterdam, you know, which is very much a separate sort of play. Amsterdam really in some ways, though it's crucial to the Netherlands, has other interests as well. So these places look at this zone and they want to do what they want with it. But more often than not, the people in this zone prevent them from doing so. And so it's a lesson in civics walking through any of these places. If you're in Nijmegen or in Breda or in Bern or Strasbourg, each of them has their own like mini epic as a, as a functioning, much of their existence, walled city, in some way negotiating their existence with very much more powerful and very unpleasant outside influences in various ways. Um, and their success or failure is, I suppose, about what a lot of the book's about. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me to be very much against the centres or the people in charge, who very often sound like maniacs in your account. I mean, and that, that's to say, it, it, it's staged as people who are too powerful involving an awful lot of people who are not as powerful in as it were futile wars so that yeah. you get a very strong sense from this and in a way see this isn't this may be one place we don't have to talk about brexit but this is a very topical book because one of the things is obviously it's about europe but also it shows you the scale of the instability of boundaries that yes. if you read this you couldn't believe for a second in a nation no. You just think, what makes a group of people cohere and how extraordinary the present dispensation is in the light of this? Yes, it's, it's, yeah, it's a book of mayhem, really. Yeah, I mean, it the, really the, is. Things are always, there's any number of vainglorious. I was thinking about potentially writing a book about France next, France and the French <coughs> Empire. And for a while I thought that was an attractive idea. But in the end, from a historical point of view, I just can't bear Paris as a, as a historical actor. It's so powerful. That, and it's so arrogant. I, in the end, I felt everything is about Paris in France, and, that to, and I love Paris as a city, but as a, as a political actor, it's simply too powerful. It'd be like writing a book about the British Empire or basing yourself in Washington, D.C. or something. I, you know, all my books have really been about cock-ups in one way or another and about yeah. not marginality, because these are very artistically and intellectually great cities in many cases, which I'm talking about, but people who are not at the center of events in a sort of toadying way. You know, these tend to be artisanal, uh, goldsmiths, locksmiths, clockmakers kind of people. And I think that's, the, that's why these places are so great. Because um. I think it's true to say, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, that we couldn't easily infer 
the author's politics from this book. I mean, there are references to patriotism and so on. And of course, you can't write about history without it being ideologically informed. But is there a, a wish, so to speak, that the narrative voice is politically unidentifiable? Yes. I sort of, I suppose I, I kind of have a, I think that history, which is ideologically loaded, by definition, is a presumption about the past. I mean, I think politics is about the present, and then politically based history is problematic because it's always requiring people from the past to behave in a different way. You know, why don't you do this? You know, why are you so elite? You know, or why are you so? You know, it's it's, it's very difficult to impose on the past values of the present because it just seems, in a way, it's sort of illiterate. And I can see why people do it, but I I find it very unsympathetic to imagine that I have some some something over people of the 15th century, say, yeah. who are just as articulate and interesting and chaotic as ourselves, obviously. Because yeah. the other bit of the illiteracy, and the book's very vivid about this, is the fact that we all know, but it's very difficult to take seriously, which is that nobody knew what was going to happen next. And we do, because it's retrospective. So it looks more coherent always than it ever could possibly be to the participants. And this is very, very powerful in this book because you feel again and again, it's, it's mayhem, you feel again and again that this is profoundly unplotted. Even though people have strong beliefs and commitments and so on and so forth, it's profoundly unplotted. Therefore, <clears throat> to have a plotted history book seems like a contradiction in terms in a way. Yes, I, yes history is a morality tale, I think, is very yeah. difficult beyond yeah. fancy that, almost. Yeah. And I have a, there's, one, there's one crux in the book where the disastrous Charles the Bold, and there's a long section on Burgundy and the creation of the Duchy of Burgundy, and how the Burgundian dukes in the late Middle Ages recreate Lotharingia as a separate realm. And Charles the Bold, the last of these four dukes, becomes incredibly close to establishing himself as a king. He's in conversations with the emperor about an upgrade to being king of Burgundy or king of Lotharingia. And he just blows it completely. He is simply so headstrong. He crosses various tripwires in Lotharingia, which doom him. Uh, and eventually, he makes the classical mistake of heading too far south and activating the Swiss, who uh, other uh, earlier generations of Habsburgs have suffered the same fate. The Swiss blamelessly sit in these high valleys making cheese. And then someone gets too close to them, and suddenly they all drop their cheese and pick up pikes, march down from the mountainside and massacre the flower of chivalry yet again. And, and they actually physically, they, Charles the Bold is so incompetent, he's one of the few uh, rulers to actually be killed on the battlefield. And normally they have some escape pod of some kind. <laughs> but but he's found, his, faith, his naked body is found gnawed by dogs in the ice outside uh, Metz. So suddenly he's dead. And it, you know, as a lightning bolt across Europe, this is astonishing. Here's a man who's in, in his early 40s. Suddenly he's dead and he only has a daughter. Mary, who overnight becomes known as Mary the Rich, um, because basically whoever she marries will wind up being, you know, quite well endowed. And uh, so this is a classic Lotharingian moment. So you have France on one side and you have uh, the, 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 the Empire, the Holy Roman Empire on the other side, the Habsburgs ruling the Holy Roman Empire. And just by chance, the French king, the extraordinarily unpleasant Louis XI, the, the universal spider, as he was known, who, was just a, who loved designing um, cruel dungeons which didn't allow you to stand up straight and things like that, and, or, um, loved dangerous practical jokes, and was always like 
lying to everybody and then lying to other people. He just was too mean, like he was too obviously aggressive and unpleasant. And so she decided to marry uh, the Emperor Maximilian, uh, or the future Emperor Maximilian. And then this resulted uh, in uh, the Habsburgs scooping the pool and taking over the whole of Lotharingia. But it also meant it was too big a place. So two generations later, the whole of the area was split between different Habsburgs. And that's why Spain winds up taking over the Netherlands uh, with (coughs) catastrophic results uh, for the people who lived there. But it's just an accident. Mary herself died in her early 20s in a hunting accident, disappears from the scene. But for this tiny period of time where she suddenly becomes the most important actor in Europe, that you can see the fates of millions of people are being decided. I mean, and there's no, because these borders change so much, you can see, again, that the, the, the things that we take for granted are, in fact, genuinely the result of, of mistakes or, or miscalculations, but also of calculations by other people. Given the, the scale and range of the book, it can't help but be interesting or noticeable when you stress some particular thing. And one of the things that struck me particularly was that you mentioned at one point lots of things in this book are said in passing, which are very, very powerful. At one point you say that you've spent quite a lot of your life studying the Habsburgs. Do you have an idea about what about that dynasty, so to speak, got to you? Why them? I think it was because, actually it's because my wife and I spent our honeymoon in Vienna Mm. and Prague. Mm. And I was like, at a tender age, I was... I was injected with Habsburg fever yeah. and their endless uh, role. I mean, their, their extraordinarily long role in European history struck me as being just completely fascinating. Because, again, they're such an odd bunch. You know, they're, in many ways, extraordinarily, strikingly mediocre people in some ways. Yeah. And yet they, 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 they have to save the world at various points or destroy the world, depending on your point yeah. of view. Yeah. Um, the continuity thing is very interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the books suggest something that something along the lines of history is partly or mostly about the destruction of history. That, that there's something quite elegiac about the book, not in some schlocky sentimental way, but there's a very powerful awareness of how little is left and how precarious, as it were, both the evidence is but also the past is. Yes, my, I, one of my heroes is Dürer, and I have a whole section on Dürer. And we're just incredibly lucky. I mean, I'm sure some of you know this, but Dürer kept this diary he decided to visit the Netherlands uh, to visit a couple of members of the Habsburg family who essentially owed him money. And he kept a diary which was originally meant to be just uh, itemizing what he was spending as a kind of expense account diary. And he just kept on adding in little interesting details. And then he added more and more interesting details. And because Jura obviously is one of the most interesting people who ever lived, the fact he wrote this stuff is just so tantalizing, you know, that he's at a dinner with, and then Charles V's there, and you know, there's various other famous people dotted around, and there's a amazing, well, there's many amazing moments. At one point, he desperately f- rushes as fast as he can to Zealand because a whale's been washed up. But by the time he gets there, it's been washed back out to sea again. But he really wants to see this whale. And then he talks, as far as we can understand, talks to these Dutch fishermen who have a, the carcass of a walrus. And so he does this sensational drawing of a walrus, which is the first indicator we have that pe- the fishermen at that point were already up in the high Arctic. But there's this a, a boggling moment where one of the real, aside from visiting Habsburgs, what, what he really wants to see is that uh, Montezuma's treasure has just arrived at Antwerp. And so he wants to see the, this Aztec treasure and is a marvellous little description. But it's all melted down afterwards. You know, like none of it survives. Um, it was all just used as loot 
but he has this amazing thing in saying, you know, there's this huge sun, there's a huge moon, you know, these are uh, some of the greatest things humans have produced, but we don't know what, that's all we know about it, you know, he just, because he had this little account book, he was just, he just wrote that down, you know. Or there's an amazing bit where he talks to this Portuguese guy and does a sketch of him, and, and I happened to, a while ago, be, and he was the main Portuguese sugar agent. He was selling Madeira sugar into Antwerp. And there's a sketch of him drawn by Dura. And some while ago, I happened to be in Madeira. And there's a museum there of Flemish art. And it turned out the Flemish art is all stuff imported by this bloke who's talking to Dura, uh, who is selling sugar and bringing in these rather tatty uh, Catholic knickknacks back to uh, Madeira. Rather, they've, they've gone through a lot in the intervening centuries. But suddenly being able to make those connections I found really enjoyable and really interesting. If you read histories of the 16th, 17th century, histories of the Reformation, and given how significant a factor iconoclasm was, that it was continuously about the destruction of images and so on, it's very easy to end up thinking that history is the history of art, i.e. the history of images and their destruction. And on the second reading of this book, I, what I was very struck by was how much art there is in it. And how much, in a way, not that it's strung along artists, but artists play a very significant role in, in the way you write history. Yes. I mean, I guess I just love Netherlandish painting, for example, yeah. and yeah. I love Rhineland painting. Yeah. And so the book is, in a way, is an excuse to visit places like Ghent, which have these heroic yeah. paintings in them. Um, yeah. And I think that the... Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot in there on Bosch, a lot on, I mean, the, the serious point about Lotharingia in relation to the Reformation and, is that the patchwork structure of Western Europe is very odd. But it's because, effectively, if you have a serious religious disagreement with someone, you just move to the next duchy. You know, like the, the German lands, the Netherlands, there's always somewhere where you can just hop over a river and suddenly you're not being persecuted. Uh, now, Sometimes people's luck run out and you have these sort of terrible pogroms of various kinds. But on the whole, what's brilliant about Western Europe is that that bit's Protestant, that bit's Catholic. You know, that's, it's Lutheran, it's Calvinist. And there also there's this escape valves, a valve for people who want to just leave and go to America, for example. Um, so there's quite a lot about colonial issues and the degree to which, again, this, this nexus around you know, London, but also Bristol, but like Antwerp, uh, Flushing, these places, really, the, the, world, the world is knitted together through these ports. Antwerp, particularly, I've got loads of stuff on things like the arrival of the first cassowary, for example, in Europe, or dodos. You know, we only know about dodos through really just a handful of drawings. I think I've seen all of them. In fact, I've gradually collected dodo drawings around Europe. You know, but there's a handful of dodos. They write, and they were fun novelty. And the Fugger family from uh, Augsburg had these cages along the docks at, at Antwerp. And they had an agent waiting for each ship to come in from um, the Far East, uh, or wherever they came from, really, saying, what do you got? And you know, the captain could make almost as much money from the parrots he had as, as from the cloves he had in the, in the hold. And so this sense of the area as being where the world meets up, I think, is also interesting. You know, that it's Montezuma's treasure, or it's dodos, or it's cassowaries, or it's sugar, or it's spices. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let me just give you a sense of the book, just briefly-ish. This is the first paragraph of the postscript, but I think you'll find it's entirely of a piece with what Simon's been saying. More than any of my previous books, I felt constrained by format. Lotharingia could both have been twice the length and indeed made the opposite arguments to the ones made here, and still I would not have used up the material in my ever more incoherent heap of notes. I wanted to write a lot more on the emperors and the sacred landscape of the Rhine, on the wonderful Clara Peters, a great Antwerp painter of still lives from the early 17th century, who fell victim to the whole book already ballooning helplessly in its coverage of that period. I'd assumed that at the centre of the book would sit Peter Bruegel the Elder and Hans Holbein, but both of whom I've venerated ever since I can remember, but about whom in both cases it turned out, to my own horror, I had nothing of any originality to say. The Dreyfus Affair, the field of the cloth of gold, abortive English invasions, nothing really about Namur despite loving the town, the drift of Gamelan into the west, Lorelei, the statue in Heidelberg showing Prometheus and the eagle in a clearly and uniquely erotic context, alpinism, how Freddie Mercury and Vladimir Nabokov just missed each other in Montreux. It's hopeless, really. What isn't obviously at all hopeless in this book is the possibility of being able to put together all these stories with an increasing sense that there is no story, that this is really beyond anybody's comprehension. And so you're left, or I'm left, after reading this book, thinking, both acknowledging the absolute incoherence of, as it were, world history or European history, and also feeling how extraordinary it is, the attempt to make patterns out of it, or simply to collect the facts and ideas. In one of the, just to conclude, Lots of very remarkable things are just said in passing. And at one point, Simon, or the narrator, refers to a recurring nightmare he has. This is literally a sentence. It is, talking about the difficulty of resolving the Battle of Trafalgar, it was for both sides like a nightmare I'd once had, where I was somewhere being forced to take a bite from a colossal apple. But it was so big that however wide I opened my jaws, I could not get my teeth into its horribly flat green surface. I feel suffocated again just writing these words. Now, obviously, that is very, in one sense, amusing and might well have been rather horrifying. But it is, of course, another creation myth. It's a Genesis myth. It's a rewriting of the Genesis story in which what's being seems to be very clearly communicated in the context of the book, that actually knowledge is too much and it's indigestible. And there's something about the indigestible and the need for enthusiasm to manage it that is very, very telling in this book. And on that note, I'd like to open this up to the audience. Yes, the, que the question is um, whether these imagined communities effectively continue to exist. Uh, is, you know, is there a sense of Lotharingia in the area? I spent several days in the Netherlands promoting the Dutch edition, and I kept waiting for someone Dutch to say what total bullshit it was. And I think, obviously, they're very polite people. But, <laughs> but I mean, everyone seemed to agree that this was a reasonable way of looking at the world. And the book does conclude, in terms of imagined communities, the origin of the European Union, the six original members, were all Lotharingian states, Benelux countries, France, Germany, and Italy. And uh, it's, to, my, to me, anyway, it was not a surprise that the key cities of the European Union are Brussels, uh, Aachen, and Strasbourg, again, Lotharingian cities. And I think the 
in terms of imagined communities, I think the conclusion of the Second World War created a unique moment where the, 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 this Lotharingian gap, which had caused effectively almost all Europe's wars, um, I mean, I'd go, I don't go into too much detail, but you know, again, it's not surprising the Battle of Waterloo was where it was. It's not surprising that the British evacuated from Dunkirk. You know, these are all class, the, 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 these towns come up over and over again over the centuries as having a particular status. And that there's this unique moment in the 1950s where it was possible to genuinely bury the hatchet and use Lotharingia as a means of, in effect, ending this split in Europe, which caused so much creativity. I mean, in some ways, I kind of think the fact that Europe is so dull might be that, that, that Western Europe has, in effect, seamed up this, ten, this great creative tension. But obviously, it, it seemed to me a perfectly reasonable price to pay. You know, the sort of somewhat sterile nature of contemporary European culture you think, well, that's great if it means no one's fighting each other. So, right. You mentioned Burgundy. Burgundy I'm not yes. sure it, it was independence. When did it end? Was it an independent state and how long? What happened? Well, it, it, became, it became independent through the weakness of the states around it. So it was a side effect of the Hundred Years' War and the complete collapse of authority that developed from that. And so the Dukes of Burgundy started off as normal French Dukes, but they just got greedier and greedier. And they realized that they could just help themselves to a lot of territory. And so they were de facto, they were never, their great weakness was they were never acknowledged by anyone as independent. They were treated as independent. Um, but the, and the dukes held court, particularly in Ghent, as powerful European rulers. I mean, they were the wealthiest rulers. I mean, they owned all these remarkable places um, all the way down. But it was the height of Flemish prosperity. But to, some, to a large extent, they relied on the collapse of France. So the French are ruled by a king who thinks he's made of glass and howls like a wolf, which is obviously problematic from a uh, decision-making uh, point of view, and allows the dukes to branch out. And the French are always being hammered by the English, who are sometimes in... in... There's great stuff about Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc was born in the Duchy of Bar, which is a classic Lotharingian space. And... She, the bar was split in two. One part was French and one part was part of the Holy Roman Empire. And one was called Bar Mouvant and the other part was called Bar Non Mouvant. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Joan of Arc was born about 50 yards into the Mouvant bit, which belonged to France. And therefore, she only, she's within less than half a mile of not being a French heroine. But anyway, she's grabbed by the Burgundians famously and, uh, and handed over to the English who then kill her. But Joan of Arc is, even Joan of Arc is a classic Lotharingian, in fact, in this case, almost Burgundian figure. But yes, Burgundy is, the tragedy of Burgundy, in a way, is that it's, it seems for several generations to be a real place, but it is just waiting for its comeuppance, in a way. It's hard to see how it could have kept going. Once the French recovered, they would have rolled up their sleeves anyway and said, what, who are these people and why are they taking our lands? If there's uh, one European town that you think most people wouldn't have been to that you would like to recommend, where would oh it be? Oh, Lord. That's a so strong responsibility. I grew up in Tunbridge Wells, and uh, actually I'm not recommending to anyone. Um, but one of the attractive things about Tunbridge Wells, I mean, for years and years and years, driving around in the back of the car with my parents, we always went past this sign, which is still there, saying, Tunbridge Wells, twinned with Wiesbaden. So as part of writing this book, I thought I must go to Wiesbaden. So I went to Wiesbaden, which turns out to be an incredibly attractive place. And obviously, it's where Dostoevsky was. Uh, his Roulettenberg in uh, The Gambler is, is Wiesbaden. It's the most interesting place. But I was slightly sad. I mean, it's got this great 
Kaiser Wilhelm period, now a casino, which I write about at length because I've never been in a casino before, so that was fun. And these great ancient baths, and, and, and also it's the, the source of a lot of 19th century spa culture at Wiesbaden. But I was saddened when I got there as I drove in from the airport. It said Wiesbaden, I think, twinned with Tunbridge Wells, but they're sadly silent about this relationship. <laughs> I think they're held in much less high esteem than the people on the tough Kent Sussex borders. <laughs> Um, a lot of the things that you write about, like calculation, miscalculation, like the vagaries of commerce, arts, famous people, all these personalities, they all exist now as well with much better sourcing. Why write about the past? I guess I feel I have no hold over the present greater than anyone else. I just kind of think it's, it's a different kind of a job, I think. There's two things, I suppose. The single most important thing anyone's ever said to me was was an Oxford historian called Barry Cunliffe, who's a specialist in prehistoric Europe. And I was chatting to him once, and he said, you do realise that when Julius Caesar reached the English Channel and therefore created the first human written account of what Europe was like in that part of the world, when he reached the Channel, he would have seen a Channel thick with complex, large trading ships, entirely manned by uh, illiterates. And the degree to which literacy even is not, for most of Europe's history, literacy has not been anything to do with the development of Europe. And obviously until the 19th century, most people weren't literate. But there's even in a period when no one was literate. In fact, you had highly sophisticated, complex systems which just didn't require anyone to be able to uh, read or write. And that struck me as being, that for me, it was like such a bolt from the blue. And I've kind of, it's kind of the philosophy of all these books is in some ways, it doesn't matter what century you're in, that people are just, they're using different methods, but we just happen to know about them because they happen to write stuff down. So we know a lot about Charlemagne because people were really struck by Charlemagne and wrote a lot down. We know very little about his predecessors and successors because people, various accidents have happened, various buildings have, I mean, you know, it's, today we're obviously we're all thinking about Notre Dame, you know, like, you know, this is a building which has successfully been there for 800 years, one of the greatest works of art ever created in Western Europe, and yet it comes, it's up to the 21st century to burn it down. You know, there is no gain. People have lasted through all kinds of extraordinary... Paris has seen some terrible things. But it seems to me useful to know um, what Paris has been through and the degree to which we're merely the latest representations of people who many, many generations back probably had rather similar discussions, albeit with probably softer lighting. (laughs) Yes, because you could end up thinking that the truth of history is the truth of language. But that's, as it were, all we've got left in a certain sense. And then you have to remember all the unlanguage there is. Yes. Yes. I mean, I've I, I just gone back from this trip to Zealand, uh, which I love. Zealand, uh, I hadn't realised. I always think of the Netherlands as being quite homogenous because they have this homogenous face to the world. But uh, my host, who lives in Vera on the north coast, was saying that uh, the villages to the west of Vera and the villages to the east of Vera, uh, you cannot understand what the people say. I mean, it's a dialect sufficiently strong that within a very few, you know, just a mile's walk, you're, you're dealing with another language version. And so again, I kind of felt this is very, again, very characteristic of this zone that you have a, really an extraordinary mixed mishmash of language as well. Uh, but that, again, you can trace that back many centuries. Or the, my other favorite example is, I haven't been there, because it's simply too marginal even for me. But there are these two little blocks of land inside the Netherlands, which are owned by Belgium. They're extremely small. 
I've always wanted to go, and it's just the result of violent arguments about the, who owned the lands of the Archbishop of Liège. And these arguments happened in a very bad-tempered arguments between the new Belgian state and the Netherlands uh, in the 1830s and 40s. And they simply couldn't resolve these two little towns. And there's a bar in one of these towns, I gather, uh, which straddles the border and therefore has a red line down the middle of the floor because they have different licensing laws in Belgium and the Netherlands. And there's a point at, I think, 11 o'clock where everyone has to jokingly jump over the line so they can carry on drinking for an extra half hour. And you kind of think, this is why Lotharingia is so great. You know, I mean, this, these political absurdities save lives. You know, you can just, historically, you've always, it's not a surprise that you know, Lenin was in Zurich. It's not a surprise Spinoza's in the Netherlands. It's not... Bale is teaching in Sedan, Protestant enclave. The French absorb it. He flees to the Netherlands and writes and writes his greatest works there. You know, it's not surprising. It's the heart of medicine. You know, these you know the, all the great Dutch medical schools, for example. So Thomas Brown, the sort of doctor, you know, he, you know, his doctorate came from um, Leiden, for example. You know, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you end up wondering reading this book: what makes a place a place? How does it how does it achieve placeness? Because the scale, I mean, obviously the number of people, the diversity of influences and the shifting boundaries all the time, it, it makes you feel reading the book, how did anybody ever know where they were? Yes, it was a particularly shocking example, actually. And I, I remember visiting Nijmegen. <clears throat> and usually I do really, I, I research really well. But the awkward background to this was that I was on the impression that in Breda, where I was staying, there was uh, the remains of Charlemagne's, one of Charlemagne's palaces, uh, which was only knocked down in about 1810. So it survived so close, but it was knocked down in 1810. And I wandered all over Breda. And I think, well, normally the Dutch have quite good signage. And then I could see like the outline of it. You could see roughly where it was or whatever. And then I checked my book again. And I realized, in fact, it was in Nijmegen, not in Breda. So I managed to project an entire vanishing on a blameless piece of parkland unrelated to where it actually was. So I went to Nijmegen and I was really shocked by how, what it was sort of, crappy town Nijmegen was. You know, it was, it's, it was just it was a modern and dreary place. And I thought, well, this is one of the ancient places. But I was just really appalled at my own ignorance because it was some American and British bombers destroyed it in about five minutes under the impression it was the German town of Claver. And so they missed Claver on that, op that thought this was Claver, destroyed Nijmegen and then went home without realizing what they'd done. And so the, 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 the identity, the geography of these places has been violently disrupted at various points in the past, and it wasn't really up to me to be uh, sniffy about uh, Nijmegen's fate, um, as it turned out. If you go to Kings Lynn or Boston in Lincolnshire or Topsham in Devon, you get a very strong feeling that you're in Flemish seaports. And I haven't got all the way through your book, but you make a strong point of the connection between the wool trade in England and the prosperity of Flanders. Uh, might your next book be titled Britannia, making Southeast England part of Lotharingia, and the rest, yes. Cornwall, Wales, Scotland, let alone Ireland, as torn apart foreign countries? Yes, I'm often, I'm, I mean, I worry, I, I agree. I mean, it's one of the most fascinating uh, links is this Eastern England, Netherlands. You know, it is the key relationship. You know, all those churches are built by sheep, you know, many millions of fleeces on ships going over to, the, to fuel the, the, the Flemish cloth trade. And, but I always feel with Britain, and I love being here, but I don't, again, I don't feel I have any, I feel it's too familiar, um, not 
not because I know a lot about Britain, but I make assumptions about Britain that makes it quite... I quite like writing about other places where, in effect, my ignorance is so overwhelming that it's a sort of... It's a, it's a teaching process. You know, when I go to Breda, I need to know that actually I misremembered where the palace was, that sort of thing. Whereas I feel in the UK, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of implicated in what I write in a way that would make it quite hard to write. But I would like... To, I mean, I, you know, it's a fascinating place. But it's, it's, like, um, it's like France. I mean, I don't... I mentioned Paris earlier on, but we all spend all our family holidays growing up in France. And so for me, France is just normal life. You know, it's not, and I find it hard to think of it as being different in some way. Um, I feel you have to be fueled by ignorance, I think, to be able to write about anything because the book is the process of finding out, as it were, rather than confirming what you think you already knew but don't. Have you got another book in mind? And if so, where? Uh, I did waste, I wasted quite a lot of time I'm so sad I didn't write this book. I really want to write a book about Borneo. Um, I did a couple of trips to Borneo, and Borneo has all the merits of Lotharingia, of being enormous uh, but diverse, tremendous obstacles, uh, split uh, <coughs> sovereignties and all the rest of it. Um, but after some enjoyable weeks in longhouses in the, in the uh, jungle and uh, looking at orangutans and things, I concluded, unfortunately, I'd have to learn Malay and I'd have to learn Dutch uh, in order to be able to write the book because most of the because I would need Malay to get out of the English and most of the scholarly literature is in Dutch. And my uh, language ability is already so poor. I mean, uh, my house is filled with uh, easy learn, X language, Y language, none of which I've succeeded in learning. And uh, the idea of, that I would actually realistically be able to read scholarship in Dutch on the Dutch areas of Borneo seemed absurd. So yes, I, so I'm... I, all ideas gratefully received, actually. Um, I was thinking of actually writing a family memoir, doing something different. I thought a short family memoir, my family's kind of odd, and I just get it off my chest. There's various interesting sources as to... They're an odd bunch, my family. <laughs> and so there'd be my... I, I was thinking like a 150-page book, uh, which maybe would be just for circulation to family members, but... Uh, it amused me that you talked about writing about your family because I wondered if your project with history is about defamiliarisation. Uh, since you're sitting next to a psychoanalyst who's already interpreted one of your dreams, I was, uh, allow myself a little uh, foray into this line of thinking. Um, but it, my main point was about um, your approach to originality and your honesty in saying that you didn't have anything interesting to say about Holbein, one of your heroes. Although you don't credit the historians um, that you've <coughs> sourced. So where does that leave you with the question of plagiarism? And I suppose I always use uh, the facts I find in other places as raw material. And I suppose the, the books are really designed to be a sequence of jokes. And as the book's only just been published, it's filled with new jo I mean, the jokes are very variable quality, but they are brand new jokes because the book's only just come out. So th for me, the main thing I enjoy about the process is keeping myself entertained as I spend ages on my own walking from place to place. Do you ever feel um, lonely on these trips? Well, I miss my family, but no. I mean, uh, I have a very poor sense of direction, but I have no override in my brain. My brain tells me I have a good sense of direction, but I have no override to say you have a very poor sense of direction. And so I've therefore spent huge amounts of time getting lost in these places, all of which it turns out to be very creative because it's possible to come up with more jokes. Like just entertain myself. I think if I was at home, I wouldn't 
be entertained. I, I had my need to keep myself amused means I've come up with loads of jokes which I write down and then incorporate them or shoehorn them into, ver into various sections. So I suppose the originality around the book is, is the manner. You know, everyone knows what happened or can find out what happened in the Burgundian period. But uh, it won't be treated remotely in the way which I do, simply through wildly selective choice of quote, you know, images and so on and so forth, I suppose that's, and newish jokes. I would have thought it was true that no one has ever read or written a history book like these. I mean, if there's an originality question, and obviously everything's going to be to some extent derivative, certainly my experience is the books are intrinsically original, as in they are unlike any other history book you'll read. And of course, there are overlaps, but still. Yes, well, one reviewer said, oh, sometimes it gets a bit too 1066 and all that. And I thought, no, higher praise. <laughs> Adam mentioned the problem of knowledge. Dürer, didn't Dürer die as a result of his curiosity? Because when he went to look for that whale in Zealand, he got a fever and died. I was wondering, is there any other Europeans who have had such a noble a death that you can mention? Yes, the, the Dura died partly as a result of going to find this whale. Um, no one's, no, I think people aren't quite clear why he died. I mean, I think it was uh, that he was failing anyway, I think, in various ways. But this, this rush across country wasn't helpful. But yeah, the book's filled with unhappy deaths of one kind or another. I mean, I think it's... It, I mean, the great non-death, I mean, one of the big set pieces in the book is Charles V's abdication in Brussels, where almost uniquely... Here is the most powerful person the world has ever known. Effectively, here is the ruler of the Americas, you know, uh, of Spain, Portugal, um, huge areas of northern Europe, and he voluntarily gives up his reign. And normally, you know, obviously, you know, deaths on the whole tend to be sudden or uh, or to do with a decline. But he actually steps out of his role, which is almost unthinkable. I mean, because the whole point is you're you're a symbolic figure. You keep on going, and your decline is part of the idea of reigning. But he refuses to do that, and uh, he heads off to Spain to a monastery he has built just for himself, and he surrounds himself by large globes, looking at the stuff he owned. And what's great is that he, there's a, still there apparently. There's a small he had a small brewery built because he was he was himself Flemish, you know, and so he wanted to drink beer. And his Italian doctors and the Spanish Renaissance kind of characters who were around him in Spain were just appalled at the coarseness and stupidity of a man drinking beer, which they viewed as being a form of dirty water. But that kind of idea of that abdication of power, I mean, he was abdicating because he was really very ill. But nonetheless, the stylishness of doing so. There's some wonderful 19th century paintings of this. Apparently, it's actually a rather boring event. There's a small number of people in the audience. But this, in the 19th century, this was turned into an operatic extravaganza where... You know, leaning on the, the, the shoulder of the, ma the man who would wind up being the, the first great ruler of the Netherlands, as it turned out, independent Netherlands and so on, surrounded by the courtier. You can spot all the people in this vast, these vast panoramas painted by Belgian artists. But that, that seems to me a great form of abdication, whereas deaths, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's always a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Thank you. I've nearly finished, and I'll give, give me two more days, and I would have finished it, but I haven't. Um, but it, it came up, it comes out in the book very clearly, and, and this evening about it's just a series of accidents, just events and accidents. Um, and you said, I think about Mary the Rich here. It led on to catastrophe. But if we hadn't had that catastrophe, we'd have had a different catastrophe. Do you ever come across a point where you think, if only this had happened, you know, if only she hadn't died, 
he hadn't married. Yeah, the, well, I think this key, would have gone yeah. in a different end. There's one key moment, which is a, after the defeat of Napoleon, the Allies get together to work out the future of Europe. And the British make a key mistake, which they didn't realise at the time. Everyone, you know, a whole generation has been fighting France. You know, this has defined decades. And the end of the war is a decisive moment. And everyone involved is very grown up about just how serious this moment is. And the, the idea is, how do you stop France doing this again? And the British create a, a giant Netherlands. The Netherlands takes over the old Spanish or Austrian Netherlands and becomes a single giant kingdom. Uh, which doesn't work. 15 years later, Belgium splits off. But the, temp- the idea is to create these gendarmes around the borders of France, which can prevent France being cheeky ever again. And of course, what people don't realise is that France is in fact burnt out by the experience of Napoleon. It was. You can't, no one in 1815 can know that, 1816 can know that, um, that France actually won't ever be the, the, the mega problem that it has been until that point. But these gendarmes are crucial, and the British refuse to the British occupied northern France and could have taken it over, but they just don't fancy it. So they have one of their periodic withdrawals from Europe and head, head back to England. But the key thing the British do is they, pers- they plead with the Prussians to, have, to grab a block of territory which will give them a border with France so that they're not stuck over in Berlin. And many of the, uh, many of the Prussians are very un- unwilling to do this. Uh, the Russians are there too. The Russians have taken over Champagne and are given enormous amounts of money to go home because this is getting very disturbing. They really shouldn't be in the west of Europe at all. But there's these vast orthodox masses being held in, um, outside Reims. But anyway, the Russians are bundled off. But accidentally, the British hand over to uh, Prussia uh, what becomes the Rhine province, uh, which is why Marx grows up as a Prussian citizen. And so that's also interesting. By accident, uh, the Industrial Revolution is just about to happen. And one of the things that the Prussians get is the old lands of the, this, uh, this women's aristocratic republic, the Abbey of Essen, which is an ancient place, which has these blameless blacksmiths called Krupp who live there. And they become Prussian citizens. And you see where this is going. They, the Prussians accidentally are given the whole of the Ruhr Valley um, as a, pres- as a mi- what is viewed as a minor present for having a small border with France to allow them to invade France easily. And so the British are happy because they know that the Prussians are on the case without realising, of course, this is, creates this extraordinary dynamic where Prussia suddenly becomes bogglingly more successful than other states. And this is genuine in accident. You know, no one in 1815 would have been able to say, those crops look like they can create wonder weapons out of steel, which hasn't been invented yet. You know, it's, it's just absurd. And if that hadn't happened, Prussia would have remained an eastern state. Berlin, the reason the First World War happens in many ways is that but Prussia remains an eastern state. They're interested in Russia and their relations with Russia, keeping Poland down. And they're not interested, really, in Belgium. They, they're a guarantor of Belgium. You know, they don't understand that they're crossing, from the British point of view, Belgium, the, the neutrality of Belgium is critical to, their, to Britain's existence. And therefore, they frivolously invade through Belgium, thinking, well, who cares? And I tend to think it's because they're not really Western Europeans. Like they're, they're, they see this as an issue to defeat France as a preliminary to doing something else without realising that they're initiating the First World War. Mm-hmm. And of course, the line of trenches goes straight through Lotharingia, which is surprising. At that point in the book, you go, don't tell me the line of trenches goes through the middle of Lotharingia. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but it does. So. I'm afraid that has to be the last word. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.